Good morning. Good morning. We've come in our study through 2 Corinthians to chapter 8 this morning. Chapters 8 and 9 constitute the longest passage dealing with giving in the Bible. And so we're going to camp out here for a while. And we're going to be talking about what I've entitled Living Grace Fully, or Living Generously, or Giving. As I say that, I see some of you cringing and saying, all preachers ever do is talk about giving. Well, that may be true where you've been, but it's not true here. In fact, we don't even put an offering plate in front of you every Sunday. Uh, I have people who sometimes come here for months, and they have to ask me, how do you give in this church? So I think if we deserve some criticism, it's that we don't say enough about giving. And we often only bring it up when there's a need or a shortfall. And our reasoning in downplaying giving is that we don't want to confuse the gospel message for unbelievers. We want to make it clear that Salvation is free. But I think our silence on the subject can send the wrong message to believers, and that is that giving is somehow just an addendum to the Christian life. That is kind of a necessary evil. It's sort of an internal, housekeeping, non-spiritual kind of business thing that we're doing. And so like it or not, I am convicted that I should talk more about giving. And this is a great opportunity because I got two chapters to work with. I did a little research. The word believe is used in Scripture 272 times. The word pray is used 371 times. The word love is used 714 times. And the word give is used 2,162 times. So it's obvious where the Bible puts the most emphasis. Giving is not an elective course in your Christian life. It's not a tack-on to your Christian life. It's an essential element. It's not something we do when we simply are impulsive about it or feel emotional about it or have an emergency situation. It should be a vital part of your life, a regular recurring action. And what I want us to see as we go through this passage is that giving shouldn't be the last thing we do. It should be the first thing. Now, before we jump into this passage, let me give a little background. As Paul is writing this letter, it's probably autumn of 56 A.D., and many changes have taken place in the 20-plus year history of the church. What began in Jerusalem on that extraordinary day of Pentecost has now spread to Judea and Samaria and Galatia and Asia and Macedonia and Achaia so that there are churches established and growing throughout the Roman Empire. Many are made up of predominantly Gentile believers, most of whom have never visited the church at Jerusalem. But they have heard the stories and they know that that's where their roots come from, and they have a special affinity for the mother church. But the stories coming out of Jerusalem are different now because they indicate that the believers in Jerusalem are having a hard time. 
They are now experiencing financial difficulty. They are struggling. And I think several factors contribute to that. The church in Jerusalem started with a lot of poor people. Jerusalem was a large city in that day. They had more poor people than most cities. James, who wrote the first book in the New Testament, said this in James 2.4, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? So the majority of the early church in Jerusalem was made up of poor people. That's why Peter said in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6 to a beggar, I do not possess silver and gold. They were poor. And on the day of Pentecost, people came from all over the country to gather on Pentecost. And on that day of Pentecost, many of them got saved and they just didn't go home. So they stayed in Jerusalem with no jobs and they were part of the church. They were poor. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we're told there was a great persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And who led that persecution? Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. And then a little later in the book of Acts chapter 11 and verse 28, we're told there was a great famine as well. So on top of the persecution, they were kind of hiding out as a church. There was a famine, and in a time of famine, the world takes care of its own. And yet these who had professed faith in Christ were ostracized from their family and their friends. And so now with a, family, with a famine going on, they were struggling. They were hurting. They were doing without. And so Paul, the former persecutor, who is now the apostle to the Gentiles, goes around to the Gentile churches, and he says, we ought to do something. And the first Gentile church to raise their hand and say we're going to do something was who? The church of Corinth. If you look at chapter 8 and you slide down to verse 10, notice the last half of that verse. He says, you who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. The Corinthians said, we want to participate. We want to give. We want to help the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul wrote to them in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the end of that letter, he says this to them in verses 1 to 4. On the first day of every week, I want each one of you to give and put it up in store so that when I come, we don't have to have any contributions. But apparently, in the church at Corinth, what started out as great enthusiasm to give has now waned. You ever do that? I'll give. And then when it came time to give, or as time went on, you forgot about the commitment of your giving. That happened in the church at Corinth. And so he writes these two chapters in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to stir them up. And we are blessed today because out of these two chapters, we're going to see some great principles on the subject of giving. And he starts chapter 8 with an interesting format. He uses the first five verses to provide the Corinthians with some incentive. He says, here's a living example of giving. And he points to the churches in Macedonia and how they gave, which tells me that Paul was a great fundraiser. He challenges that church by saying, here's some other churches that are really giving. And he knows that they'll be challenged by the example of others who were doing more than they were. Look at chapter, one, chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, brethren... We wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given 
in the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave. Now, what I want you to see here is Paul starts out and says, I want to make known to you the grace of God. And to make known to them the grace of God, what does he point to? He points to giving. Which tells me that the grace of God is displayed through giving. In fact, in these two chapters about giving, the word grace is used ten times. That's why I have entitled this, Living Grace Fully. Now, when you think about graceful, what do you think about? You probably think about a ballerina, or you think about me on the dance floor. (laughs) Somehow, this keeps coming up. I said this last week that I was a good dancer, and you thought I was going to show you some moves, and I didn't because I don't have any. My daughter said she was going to say, liar. I couldn't be on Dancing with the Stars, but if they had a show called Dancing with the Scars, I could be there. Graceful is the opposite of awkward. But let me tell you something. God has a different definition of graceful. Acts 6.8 tells us that Stephen was a man full of grace. Now, how do you see and recognize a person that is full of grace. Well, look at verse 6 of this chapter. He says, So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you, and you expect him to say, the giving that you promised to do. But instead he says, this gracious work as well, or literally, this grace You expect him to say giving, and he says grace. Look at verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this grace also. So every time you expect him to say giving, instead he says grace. And you know why? Because grace is giving. In fact, as I read and reread these two chapters in preparation for this series, I was surprised to discover that the word money does not appear one time in these two chapters. Paul is talking about giving their money, and he never mentions money. Why? Because generosity doesn't start with money. Generosity starts with grace. And so this morning, I want you to see that clearly. And so I want to show how grace is foundational to giving. And I want to do a flyover this morning and pick out three concepts that will allow you to live grace fully. The first concept I need to understand is that God's grace gift to me is Jesus. One of the most important words in the Bible is grace. Apart, you, you take this word out and you're not saved. You're lost. 
Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. And yet grace is one of those special, unnatural, amazing concepts that's hard to define. My simple definition of grace is this, and it doesn't cut it, but this is it. It's God giving me what I need instead of what I deserve. You've heard people describe grace with the uh, acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. That actually comes out of this chapter, chapter 8 and verse 9. Notice what it says there. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Grace is Jesus taking your nothingness and giving you everything he had. Now, how do you define that? But that's grace. In fact, look at the last part of this passage. Look at chapter 9 and the last verse, verse 15. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What is God's indescribable gift? gift. It's Jesus. You see, grace is indescribable because its expression is Jesus, the indescribable gift of God. Let me ask you a personal question. What's the greatest gift you've ever received? If you don't answer Jesus, then you don't get it. You know, we often think that uh, Jesus is God's gift to the world or God's gift to us. I hear people often kind of quote the Sunday school answer. Well, yeah, Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's true, but it's always personal because what's the rest of that verse say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, that's personal, whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. I love Paul's words in Galatians 2.20 where he said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I trust this morning that you can put your name in there, that you can say that in a personal way. Jesus gave himself for me. He is the greatest gift that I have ever received. In fact, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we see that he is the expression of the Father's graceful heart because it says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then two verses later, it says this in John 1, 16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. He is is God's graceful gift to us, and he's full of grace. And when we receive him, we get grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus is the gift that doesn't stop giving. 
He's given to you and he continues to give grace because there is no, he is bottomless and topless. He has infinite grace. I like to think about this verse in the concept because I love the ocean, of sitting on the edge of the ocean. And the waves come in, and one wave comes, and it goes out, and you enjoy it, and guess what? Here comes another one. And one after another wave comes, and they never stop. And that's the way it is with the grace of God. It's grace upon grace upon grace, and it never ends. One of the best verses to help understand this is Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God gave us the most precious gift of all, his son, what's going to stop him from giving us everything else? That's just logical. If I gave you a brand new car, let's say I came up to you and I said, there's a brand new Lexus out in the parking lot. Here's the keys. It's yours. It's a gift. It's free. It's yours. Drive it away. Would it make sense for you later to be going, boy, I'd like to ask Dan for a piece of gum, but I'm not sure he's going to give it to me. If I would give you a Lexus, there aren't many things I wouldn't give you. That's the way it is. If God gave us his son, then that means everything else is ours as well. He gave us the best. And he gave us a gift full of grace, and it keeps coming grace upon grace. That's the way God is. And so God demonstrates to us that giving is the outflow of grace. Second concept. My grace gift to God is me. The key to why the Macedonian Christians were so generous is in verse 5 of chapter 8. It says, and this, not as we had expected, notice, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Can I tell you something you probably already know? God doesn't need your money. And God doesn't even want your money if he doesn't have you. Christianity is not a legalistic religion. It is a loving relationship. And I have often said to you when I talk about parenting that some parents spell love T-H-I-N-G-S. Some parents spell love things. Kids spell love T-I-M-E. Time. And things will never make up for a lack of relationship. And yet some Christians approach God that way. We don't really have a relationship with God, but we think we can appease him by giving him things. And so when the offering plate comes around, you put an extra 20 in and think, I'll I'll pacify God by giving more. What's God saying? I don't want your money. I want you. And having you is spelled T-I-M-E. It's your time. Did you know that the Bible never teaches that you should give some of your money to God? Did you know that? You know why? Because it's not yours. 
It's not yours. The Bible says you are a steward. You know what a steward is? A steward in the Bible is somebody who took care of somebody else's property. When the master went on a journey, he left a steward in charge of his stuff to take care of it. That's who you are. You are the steward taking care of God's stuff. So when you give, you're simply giving God's stuff. You're just moving it from earth to heaven. You're just giving it to God who already owns it. In fact, you don't even belong to you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You don't belong to you. The stuff you have doesn't belong to you. So it's kind of odd that we hang on to it so tightly. I love the incident where the religious leaders came to Jesus and tried to trap him by asking him the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now they set this up and they, when they asked the question, they thought we've got him now. Because if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, the Jews are going to be upset at him because he is really endorsing the evil Roman oppressors. If he says no, the Roman government is standing by and they're going to grab him for treason. What does Jesus do? He asks the question himself. He says, does anybody have a coin? And they brought a coin. And Jesus said, whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's image is on the coin. And Jesus said, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. His image is on the coin. His picture's on the coin. It's his coin. Give it to him. Then he said something more profound. He said, and give to God what belongs to God. Where is God's image? You are made in the image of God. God's image is implanted on you. So what Jesus is saying, give to Caesar what's got his image on it, and give to God what has his image on it. That means give yourself to God. There's probably no verse in the Bible that challenges us better to do this than Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Let me read it to you in the message. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Now let me tell you something. You cannot do that apart from grace. And that's why Paul waits 12 chapters to tell us that. He doesn't lead with that. In fact, he says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. What are the mercies of God? The first 12 chapters. And the first 12 chapters tell us that we're saved by grace through faith. Understanding the grace of God, I can now offer myself to him. So that means if we did pass the offering plate, it would be appropriate for you to get out of the aisle, set it on the floor, and stand in it. 
and say, God, I'm all yours. That's our response to his grace. His grace gift to us is Jesus. Our grace gift to him is ourselves. And then the third thing, the proof of God's grace in me is giving. We saw that in the first three verses. The word grace and the word giving go together like two peas in a pod. You can't have grace without giving. Now, you can't have giving without grace, but you can't have grace without giving. Grace and giving are two sides of the same heavenly coin. Heads is grace, tails is giving. They go together. In fact, notice the challenge he gives to them in verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, you got all this going. Faith and love and utterance and earnestness. See that you abound in grace also. What's he talking about? Giving. Grace is synonymous with giving. How do you abound in grace? You give more. In fact, look at the end of this passage, chapter 9 and verse 13. Because of the proof, there's our word, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. How will the Christians in Jerusalem see the grace of God in the Christians in Corinth? By their giving. How did God show His grace to us? Verse 9, He gave. How do we show His grace in us? Chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. We give. The Jerusalem saw church saw the grace of God in them because they gave. You ever asked that prayer and said to God, Lord, help me to show your grace to other people? Well, guess what? The only way that prayer is going to be answered is by you giving. That's the proof. The grace of God will not only open your heart, it will open your hands as well. Grace is giving, so if you have grace, you will be a giving person. That's why John said in 1 John 3, 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? John says if you've got stuff, if you've got things and your brother doesn't, and your heart is not moved to give to him, there's a big question mark about the reality of your faith because that's not God's love. And that's not God's grace. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 in the message. Tell those rich in the world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Tell them to go after God, who piles on all the riches we could ever manage. 
to do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. Now, that's written to the rich. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, Dan, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Well, based on the standard of living around the world, guess what? We're all rich. When I was in Africa, I, I woke up the first morning in Africa and I saw a guy outside sweeping a dirt trail with a broom. I thought, why do you do that? So I asked Dale Hamilton, the missionary, why is this guy out here sweeping a dirt trail in the early morning? And he said, I pay that guy a dollar a day. And I just kind of come up with stuff for him to do because I want to help him out. And he makes a better salary than almost anybody around here. Dollar a day. A recent study conducted by the United Nations revealed that if you have a net worth of $2,200, that means how much you own. Some of you have a stereo that costs more than that. If you have a net worth of $2,200, you are wealthier than 50% of the world's population. If you have a net worth of $61,000, you are richer than 90% of the world's population. We are rich. The Bible teaches that true life is not about accumulating more and more wealth. It's about receiving all that I have as a gift from God and then being willing to share it with other people. Ray Steadman, one of my favorite preachers and writers, wrote this. The only true motive for giving is the grace of God, the goodness of God to you. If God has not done anything for you, then for goodness sake, don't give him a dime. But if he has, then pour it out according to the measure you have received. Have you received God's grace gift to you, Jesus? Have you given yourself to him as your grace gift? And is giving the evident byproduct of his grace in you, is it just pouring out of you as an expression of grace to others? We're going to close the service by watching a video I want you to see that illustrates grace, and then I'll come back and apply that a little bit and we'll close. <laughs> 